0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus.
1: Um, I want to begin this session uh, with a story about one of Christianity's greatest uh, theologians. His name, Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther was a monk. He lived in the 16th century. He was a very, very able scholar. Uh, in 1508, he was appointed to the theological faculty at the University of Wittenberg. However, even though he was such an able man, he was a very troubled man. Um, You see, Martin Luther grappled with his own ungodliness in the face of God who he knew to be holy and it drove him to despair. Um, But more importantly, do you know what it did? It drove him to the scriptures. Uh, He himself tells the story of what happened. Uh, He would sit in a small room in a tower of the monastery that he belonged to. Night and day, he'd just search the scriptures. For answers for his problem he focused on the opening chapter of Romans and he searched for and as he searched he alighted particularly on Romans chapter 1 verse 17 let me read to you verses 16 and 17 so just listen to them for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation this is in Romans 1 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Friends, if you know that verse, and you know what it means, let me tell you, let you into a little secret. It was Martin Luther's rediscovery of it that means you know what it is. He, he rediscovered it. And, it, and when, when he discovered this verse, it caused massive problems for him, you see. And within that verse, the particular term that troubled him the most was the righteousness of God. You see, because of his history and what he'd been taught, that, that phrase t- filled Martin with anger, and hostility toward God. But as he meditated on it day and night, he began to gradually understand it. He began to realize that the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17 is not about the righteous judgment of sinners, which he thought it was about, what it was about. No, it was about the righteousness of God that God freely gives to those who believe in Jesus. He makes them righteous. When Martin realised this, uh, let me quote what he said. He was altogether born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. This is the monk who suddenly realised what God was about and what Paul was speaking about in Romans. Before he understood that verse... He had only unrest and uncertainty. When he understood the verse, his conscience was freed. He was certain of salvation. And you know what he called it? He said it opened to him the gate of paradise. If you're a Christian here today, uh, then my guess is you've been greatly influenced, perhaps unknowingly, by Martin Luther's discovery. You see, he discovered, he recovered biblical truth. Do you know how he did it? So you here have all been influenced by him in one way or another. You don't know it, but you have. Do you know how he did it? He read his Bible. He simply grappled with his Bible till he found out what it meant. He did the task of exegesis. That is, he searched the scriptures in order to understand what God was saying. And that's what we're doing. And if you do it well, friends, let me tell you, it will blow your mind day after day after day. Christianity is a religion based on the Word of God because the Word of God written reveals the Word of God living, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the key to Christian faith. So where do you start with that? You start in the text of the Bible. At the very heart of biblical interpretation is this task we've been looking at, exegesis, drawing out from the text what it means. So what I'm going to do is just uh, define uh, exegesis a little more. Um, So here's exegesis. Uh, It's that looking down at the text. Technically the word exegesis means to lead out or to lead lead forth. It's the task of drawing out from a text what it means and then filling out what its original readers or hearers would have understood it to mean. So the person who engages in this task is therefore called an exegete. They are exegeting the text like Martin Luther Someone who draws out from a text its meaning. Now there's a term which is sometimes used to explain the opposite of exegesis. Do you know what it is? That's right. Someone's got it: Asegesis: reading into a text." Ace is a Greek word that means "into, right? So Asegesis is when a meaning is read into a text in a way that is foreign to its own meaning. In other words, meaning is imported to the text, forced upon the text, rather than drawn from the text. And let me tell you, there is no shortage of people who can do it. And let me tell you what's even worse, there is no shortage of people who do it in the pulpit. Read into a text something that is foreign to the text. So you don't want to do that, you want to read out of the text. That's what I want you to do anyway. And that's what God wants you to do exegesis is the drawing out of a meaning and it can be broken up into many, many parts. Um, So, uh, remember what I said earlier on. We observe a text. We observe a text like Sherlock Holmes might observe a room or a person in a room and we look at, reflect and ask questions. So, I want to just introduce you to some common elements of exegesis. So, now, hopefully now... There will be. You've got it in your booklets anyway. There's a there's a little um, diagram that has looked down exegesis. Have you got that? You haven't got it. Okay. Well, it'll appear up here. Hopefully, we'll see. Have we got it or not? No. Nothing else. That's it. All right. (laughs) Then let me tell you. I will give it to you in words. Okay, I know you all need diagrams, but here we are. Uh, Exegesis is the drawing out of the, the text its meaning. And how do you get started with exegesis? Three things, right? So here are the things to write down. Read it out loud. I've told you that already. Observe it and meditate on it. That's how you start. Read it out loud. Meditate on it. Observe it. Um, okay. Next thing I want to tell you is there are two important elements within exegesis. There are there are the things that concern context and the things that concern content. Does that make sense? Things that concern ah uh, we have got it now, have we? Yeah. Wonderful. Otherwise you were just going to have to put up with me talking, and it's much better to have pictures. <laughs> So, um, the way to get started is to read it out loud, and meditate, observe. Now, here are the questions to ask about contexts. Right, contexts are, what, what is the context of this passage? What comes before it? What comes after it? Why is this particular passage important in the whole work? How does it fit into the book as a whole? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the question of context, literary context. Then there are question, another, another sort of questions that you have. So that's, John, that, that's context. And the next one is literary type. That is, what sort of literature is this that I am dealing with? So for example, think about your Old Testaments. Think about the book of Psalms. What sort of literature is it? It's poetry. Think about the book of Genesis. What sort of literature is it? Now here it's tricky, isn't it? Is it history or is it not history? That first part, Genesis 1-3, to is that history or what is it? Is it science? It's not science, but what is it? How does it represent? What does it say about God? Then what about the story of Abraham? What is that? Well, not fiction, right? It is actual story, but it's story telling the people about God. Okay, so context is important. That is, you write what, what situation gave rise to this particular literature and to what situation was it addressed? If you can answer those two questions, you will be well ahead. So think about the epistle to the Romans. From what situation was it written? Well, from an apostle who wanted to communicate to his people what the gospel was all about. Okay, And to what situation was it written? A group of people who needed some information, needed to learn. So, let's now, let me give you some examples. When we read the book of Malachi... You won't understand it properly unless you understand that the situation being addressed it was when Israel came back from exile in Babylon. When you read the Gospels, you won't understand them unless you understand the Romans were occupying Judea at the time. If you're reading the second two chapters of the book of Revelation, it'll be important to know the details of... Do you remember those little those those cities? It'll be important to know their situation. So... The sorts of things you need to ask here is, what's what's the background to this passage? For example, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi are set in the time of the exile from Babylon, just after the exile from Babylon. God's people are under significant pressure. Um, So context is important. So what sorts of contexts are there? There's a literary context, that is, what type of literature is this? There's a situation context, that is, what is the social, ideological and theological context being addressed? Now this is where you don't have the diagram, and uh, I will just... oh Actually, you do have it, don't you? Yes, so context, look at the different contexts there. Here are the things to ask. What kind of literature is this? What is the social, political, cultural, ideological, and theological context for this? What is the literary context, that is what comes before and what comes after? Does that make sense? Okay, and then what is the situational context? Who's the author? Who are the people addressed? What's their historical and geographical? Uh, what items of historical and geographical influence and impact do you need to look at? Now. Um, Next, content, and uh, to talk about content, um, I want to, no, I can't show you this example, but I want you to imagine, how many of you play Scrabble or know how to play Scrabble or have seen Scrabble pieces, right? All of us, okay, Scrabble pieces. It's on the board. Oh, great. Good. Then I'm feeling a lot more secure now. Okay. Three Scrabble pieces. Okay. There's all sorts of ways you could arrange those Scrabble pieces, isn't there? You just think about it, look at it, think about it. First one, so next slide hopefully. Means absolutely nothing, does it? (laughs) So that's not much use to me. What about the next one? All of a sudden it means something, doesn't it? So you've taken those letters, you've Conjured up a four footed animal in my brain because of the way I've been taught to identify with those things. However, look at the next one. I could put the same things, conjure up a different, entirely different meaning. No longer my dog, but my God. Okay, so let's try something on a larger scale. So the next one George Mildred loves by their own, those words mean absolutely not much. Okay. <laughs> um, however, if you rearrange them and give them structure, suddenly their meaning is conveyed. And uh, I, I think we've got the next slide, haven't we? No, we haven't. All right, go back. Um, earlier on in our life together... Heather and I uh, had names for each other that were names where every now and then we still bring them up. Okay, I am George. She is Mildred. And if we want to have a go at each other, like we want to capture a personality tray or something, we will sometimes revert to those names Oh, George. (laughs) (laughs) Or, Oh, Mildred. It has all those tones to it. If we rearrange you know, if we arra- rearrange those letters from what they were to what they are now, they have a very conscious meaning for us. And they tap into the romance part of our life together, but they also tap into the comedy part of our life together. And so what happens with people? Who writes scripture under the hand of God is they choose their words, they oversee the writing of those words, they structure those words to convey what God wants to say. Does that make sense? So, what do you need to do then to interpret what they're saying? I have given you a clue for interpreting George Mildred loves. Right? Similarly, You need to get some clues from God if you're to understand the Bible well. What are some of the key things you need to grasp to understand the Bible well? You need to see how it's structured. That's number one. See how it's structured. See the structure of the parts and the whole. Then you need to see the flow of thought. Does that make sense? What's the flow of thought? Then you need to see the main ideas and themes that are in the passage. How are you going to get there? By looking for the key, wor- key words and phrases that the author uses. So, when it comes to words, the first sort of words that you come across in the Bible that are the most, the trickiest for you, what are they? They're the words you've never seen before, aren't they? Okay? So let me give you some. Maybe some of you know what these m- mean. Propitiation. Atoning sacrifice. Gleanings. Behemoth. Behemoth. Do you know what any of those mean? Some of you I could see did. But what about these ones? So they're they're ones I really sort of, they're not usual ones. But here are some that you'll come across every now and then in your own reading of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. Propitiation. Propitiation, what is that? And what's the difference between propitiation and expiation? what about gleanings well it's not terribly important theologically but it's important you understand what it is so what you need so there are lots of words we don't know the meaning of so where do you where do you go to find meaning second sort of words that we have encountered are words that already have big meaning for us so here are words that you all know and as I, as I speak them to you, I want you to think about what do I understand that word to mean? Grace. Judgment. Love. Peace. Now, sometimes we think we know what those mean. Sometimes we'll need to re-examine them again to see if we do know what they mean. So that's the second sort of words. Those words we've encountered before, but maybe we need to adjust them some way. Does that make sense? Third sort of words are the words that appear to be significant to the author of a passage. For example, when Moses, God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, do you remember what it says? He describes himself as the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to love and abounding in steadfast love. It's my favourite Hebrew word, chesed. You have to say it right down the back of your throat chesed. Okay? <laughs> um, it's, very, it's a very important word in the Bible. It's occurred in Jonah, and it occurs lots of places in the Bible. And uh, so we need to find out what does that word mean. So, how would you go about finding the meaning of a word? You could look at a dictionary, couldn't you? But maybe if it's not a dictionary influenced by the Bible, it won't be there. You might look at a Bible dictionary there, and so on. So, what have you got when you when you've got a text in front of you? First of all, you've got things that you just see, things you observe. Then you've got context. Where do they come from? What are they about? And so on. And, uh, so, and then you've got things where you are, need to ask, what is the flow of thought here? What are the key words and phrases? And you might then need to look at other things like imagery and metaphor and word pictures. Um, each of those, In each of those cases, words are important for the way that they're put together. On their own, words often mean nothing. Or they may be rich for you personally because of other things that are happening. I want to show you something and let's let's have a look at an example. I've skipped over lots of content for a reason. But I want you to have a look at Psalm 1 verse 1. And I don't know if we're going to... Yes, we've got it. Good. Have a look at it. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Now, how does that work? Look at the word pictures that are painted. In the first line, walk is used in relation to doing what? Keeping company with the wicked. Can you see what's going on there? It's, it's sort of like, uh, it's like this. Um, don't get into this. Walking along with the wicked. Then stopping and saying, wow, this is really good and listening. (laughs) And then, wow, this is very good. I'm going to sit down and talk talk about it together and learn about it together. Can Can you see what the what this statement in Psalm 1 verse 1 is doing? It's saying, don't even get started on that (laughs) because where it will end is you'll be sitting in it does that make sense and poetry is a great way to do that so don't walk in step with the wicked but notice how they progress they progress from being the wicked to sinners to mockers so just by exploring that you can find out lots the image given here is an image of someone who's first just walking along then they get captivated then they stand then they slow down then they stand then they sit the right of the psalm here is therefore conveying a very potent point isn't he about don't even get started with the wicked does that make sense don't even get started with the wicked because before long you'll be sitting with them and you'll be engrossed with them. But how does it convey that? It conveys that by imagery and metaphor and word pictures. So, another thing to look out for. Intertextual links in the Bible. You see, if, because the Bible is the history of God's revelation to his people for their good then he keeps doing it in different ways. Now, what's the most important thing to look for in relation to what God says? I think the thing to look out for is what are the central theological concepts? Now, because that's hard for us to grasp, we're going to spend time on that later on its own, so I'm not going to spend time on it now. But... uh What are the thoughts? Here's some things to put in your brain to look at when you read the Bible. First, what does this passage tell me about God? Ask that question all the time. What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about the world? What does it tell me about the situation I am facing or the original readers were facing? Then ask yourself this. Does this passage have any major reworking of earlier ideas in those areas? Is it being reworked here? Does it teach me more about the world than what had been said previous to this in the Bible? Does it tell me more about humanity than had previously been told to me? Does it tell us about the situation we face or are going to face in a way that nothing previous to this has been said? And then you've got to explore time doing that. So can you see where observations got now? So we started just observing. Then we said, oh, is the context important? Is the content important? Are there key words and phrases? What do they mean? Are there intertextual links and so on? So what I'm saying is that the task of reading and understanding the Bible becomes more and more deep as you go on. And let me tell you, I've been a Christian for a long time and I learn, still learn new things every day when I read the Bible. But I want to show you, or Heather's going to come and show us, a little bit of this in action. Are you all right for that, Heather? So we've tried to trim that down a bit but i'm very happy to supply the full notes for what i just did okay because there are full notes but they would have taken us some time and we worked you last session okay and so we weren't going to work you quite as hard this session so yes we will (laughs) she's she's merciless
0: He's a softie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Andrew's given you some of the theory, but the best way of learning theory is to put it into practice. So you need to go back to Jonah 1 again. You think that we've drilled Jonah 1 and got all the meaning out. You haven't yet. Um what we need to what we've done is an exercise in observation. So I'm, I presume that you remember what we've just done, that you remember the stuff that we've um, drawn out from or noticed from um, the text in Jonah 1, and that you've got a memory of some of the questions that we asked and the answers that we got. It's important that as you do this exercise that you, you focus attention on the fact that this is an exercise to help you understand God's word. It's kind of the same as having a conversation with someone where you ask a question of clarification. You don't ask that so that you can, you know, sort of hear your own voice. You ask that so you can better understand what they are saying. Hermeneutics or interpretation is not kind of a machine that you shove your findings in and get um, answers at the other end. It's a process whereby you can analyze and explore the truths of what you what you're seeing. Um, Andrew likes to refer to Um, biblical interpretation as an art rather than a science. It is like a relationship between people. There's interaction with the text and there's debate about the text. You're asking questions, you're thinking, you're reflecting. You are trying to work out what the human author and the divine author is saying in that text. That is not enter in this end, get finished product this end. It is a process. So the text of scripture represents the divine author working through a human author to communicate a message to us, human recipients. So if we are going to work in interpretation, we need to be looking at the text and trying to work out what God is saying to us. So let's think, let's, with that in mind, so we've now got a whole heap of facts. With that in mind, let's actually sit down and think about the questions that we raised in the last section. I'm going to remind you of them because you might have forgotten. There was a lot of information in the last section. So first, because of our observation questions we actually ended up, as we were observing, doing some exegesis. We started drawing the meaning out of the text. And, and this, so for instance, when we asked who, um, you know, we asked who was writing to whom, who the various people were in the passage, we started thinking about the situations they were in and the, and other elements of context. And that will always happen. Because the look up, look down, look back, look forward, look here is a framework, but it's not linear. And so sometimes you'll be looking down and noticing certain things, asking certain questions and you'll kind of go off on a tangent before you come back. So be aware, it's not, you know, there, it, it's a process, but it's not wrong to jiggle the process a bit. So, when we were looking at the situation that it was in, we picked up some historical and geographic matters. So, we looked at a map. We found out where Nineveh was, where Tarshish was. We dug a little bit deeper. We looked at Isaiah 66 and discovered a little bit about Tarshish. Um, We've just sort of explored a little bit around some of these ideas that we've observed. But the other thing that we noticed um, as we were just observing the content was some of the theological ideas. So remember we noticed that God was a sovereign creator. I mean, Jonah stated that, so it was pretty hard to miss. But it was apparent in the way that he, appoint, he, he uh, makes the, creates a storm um, and, you know, send, appoints the fish. We also notice that God was a redeemer. He rescues. He rescues Jonah. He rescues the sailors. We notice that they prayed to other gods. Nothing happened. They prayed to God. Stuff starts happening. In other words, the sovereignty of God is one of the major themes. He, he alone is the God who can make changes in the world. He's sovereign. One other thing we noticed as we were looking at the who is even though the focus is on Jonah, we notice that he's an anti-hero. The sailors are actually the heroes of this piece. The other thing we noticed was the repetitions. So we notice the repetition of the word fear and we notice the repetition of the word hurl or throw. And so what we're going to do now is to start um, analysing uh, analysing the passage, looking at some of these factors and putting it together in a way that makes sense. Now when we do this at home, we tend to get out the coloured pencils. So um, I, I tend to do it on my computer. Andrew sometimes does it. Well, how do you do it now? You used to do it with pencil. But we, we actually highlight repetitions. We um, cut and paste the passage into a Word document. We start playing with it. We, we make it basically visually noticeable where the repetitions occur. Yeah, so the indenting is really important. Yeah, you know when I read, my passage is indented and that indenting gives me the meaning of the passage as I read which makes it easier to put expression in. So let's have a look at another factor in Jonah 1. We're going to look at how the story progresses because we've noticed a whole heap of things. So let's look at how the story progresses and I think we have yeah, here's the progression. So we have God speaks his word to Jonah. That's, that's how it starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Then Jonah hears the word, but he refuses to obey. He runs away. Then the Lord hurls a great wind and there's a great storm. The sailors fear. The sailors cry out to their gods. The sailors try to save themselves. Jonah snores on. Jonah is denying there's a problem at this point. The sailors recognise the problem. The sailors question Jonah. Jonah responds and he says that he fears the Lord. He the Lord. The sailors are afraid because they know he's running away from God. The sailors question Jonah again, and Jonah tells them that if they throw him overboard, they can avoid the storm. The sailors don't like that idea, so they try to avoid, uh, to save Jonah by rowing to shore. Doesn't work. So the men pray to God, to the Lord, they throw and then throw um, Jonah overboard, and then they when the sea stops, they fear the Lord and honor him. God rescues Jonah. That's the flow of the passage. So having heard it twice, read out loud, and having looked at the passage and how it works, um, you can see that there's a definite flow. Now let's take some of those repetitions that we mentioned and add them into the mix. And you see something slightly different. What you see is what's called a chiasm or a sandwich. So in Hebrew often you have this chiastic structure and the heart of the sandwich. You know when you have a sandwich, you have bread, bread, chicken. It's a chicken sandwich. You don't go to the shop and say, i just like the bread today, please. If anything, you go and say, i just like the chicken. So the real core of the sandwich is the filling. Well, here we have at the middle is the core of the passage. And what you'll see is this chiasm is structured around the repetitions. So in verse 4, the Lord hurls a wind on the sea. The mariners fear and cry to their gods, in verse 5. And while they're hurling cargo into the sea, Jonah is sleeping. So we've got two hurlings and a fear. By the time we get to verse 9, Jonah says, Oh yeah, I fear. I fear the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And in verse 10, the mariners exceedingly fear so they've already feared now they're exceedingly fearful and why are they exceedingly fearful because they know that Jonah is running away from the Lord that made who made the sea and the dry land then they question him and then Jonah tells them to hurl him into the sea they've been hurling the cargo in Now he says, hurl me into the sea. They don't like the idea, but eventually they hurl Jonah into the sea and the storm finishes. And then the mariners fear the Lord exceedingly. Can you see how by looking at these repetitions, you notice both a balance in the passage and an acceleration through the passage? We see the central theological idea in the center that God is the creator of everything. It means that when God appoints a great fish, it's not a surprise. This is the God who made the sea and the dry land, so obviously, He's the God who controls the fish. He controlled the weather, He can control a fish. We also see in this passage, when we look at it like this, we see the we see the rebellion at the beginning. Then we see from from verse 4, we see, if you like, the problem arise and the solution at the end. So we see a God who rescues. Yes, he sent the storm in the first place, but he also rescues them from the storm. It's, it's a judgment and a redemption. But there's another... idea that's that really comes out when you look at the repetitions in this passage and that is the contrast between Jonah and the sailors you see when Jonah says I fear the Lord who made the heavens uh, made the heavens and the sea and the dry land they they have exceeding fear they're amazed at his Raise and rebellion against such a great god his ungodliness and so they exceedingly fear if this if we have on this boat this guy who has actually opposed this great god we are done and you see their response but the Mariner the Mariners are basically they end up they know who God is. Jonah, however, he claims he fears God. I fear the Lord who made the heavens and the dry land. But he doesn't that fear doesn't actually result in any action that demonstrates the reality of it. He flees from the presence of God, he disobeys the word of God, he, he goes to Tarshish rather than Nineveh. He sleeps what better way of ignoring God than going to sleep? Um, it doesn't work for some people. God sends dreams. But God didn't send a dream. He sent us. He sent a storm here. He knows what's right, but he just refuses to do it. In fact, he's even willing to get thrown into the sea rather than do what God says. The sailors don't know God, but they do all the right things. They consult God and they fear him. They obey the word of God and his prophet Jonah. So, in, in fact, Jonah's a prophet. And when he says, throw the them me into the sea, they obey Jonah, even though they don't want to. And then at the end, they call upon God and sacrificing um, to him. So, this is the conversion of pagan sailors. So, if you ever want to have hints on evangelism, go on a boat trip with a bunch of pagans Ask God to call up a storm and say, throw me in the sea. Guaranteed. I don't know that that's the message this is meant to convey. So this is the structural centre of the passage. So from a literary point of view, the structural centre is Jonah's claim to fear God and the mariner's fear. But is there another center to the passage besides the structural center because you can't just presume that this is the only center and in some ways i think although the focus is on the fear of god there's another focus here because at the center you have jonah and you have the mariners and you have a contrast between the two So in many ways, the message center is less about the fear of God and more about the response of Jonah and the mariners. Can you see that, that comparison there? And so is the message in Jonah 1 a critique of Jonah, who in his arrogance can say, I fear the Lord, but in his actions, denies it, and then you begin to see that maybe this is a message to all people who respond like Jonah. Can you see how, in examining this, we've um, we've observed the passage, we've tried to find a main point, we've tried to pin down what is happening in the passage. Um, But we've also mapped out some work that needs to be done in the next step. So the next step will happen after lunch. And this is the look back and look forward. So we've looked at the fear of God and we've looked at the arrogance of Jonah. So maybe we could trace the fear of God backwards and the fear of God forwards in Scripture. We could trace the ideas of arrogance, God's people being arrogant towards outsiders or confident, overly confident in their status towards God. I mean, what co- that, that's pretty in your face. I fear the Lord who made the heavens and I'm running away from him. That's not really. Give us a break. It also um, raises some social and cultural ideological ideas that we may need to look up. Um, but what, what we hope that you get from this and this is just the look down is a dynamic interaction with the text you're just noticing stuff and then asking questions you're just putting, raising issues that need to be followed now another area that we could look at here is the question of genre and we'll probably look at that a little bit more later um literary context is kind of irrelevant here we know it's a it's a prophetic book but we're looking at chapter 1 so what comes before it the previous book it's not kind of like we don't need to go if we're looking at chapter 2 we'd need to the literary context would be we'd need to read it in light of chapter 1 um so context isn't as significant we do need to look forward in the book and we need to look at What comes after? When we leave this book, Jonah's not in a good place. So is that the end of Jonah? Is this a very tragic story of a disobedient prophet? What comes next? We haven't really done much with imagery and metaphor or word pictures. We could have done more about that. We could have explored what the sea meant to the Jews. There's a whole heap of stuff we could have explored. Um... But the main thrust, I think, in this particular section is on the flow of the narrative. At the moment, we haven't really explored intertextual links. They become very important in the next chapters. They're less important here. Um, So you'll find that once we move into the next chapter, the intertextual links really connect strongly back to, for instance, Exodus 34, 6-7. And that's the end of this session. Um, So we've looked at Jonah 1. I hope you understand Jonah 1 a lot more than you did before. And I hope that you don't see this as being an arduous process. It's kind of like getting to know a loved one. As Christians, we love God. When we read his word, we're getting to know what he wants to say to us. We're trying to clarify the message. We're trying to explore the message. We're trying to say, what do you mean by this strange story? So this is not just a mental exercise. This is a relational exercise. It's a way to interact with our Heavenly Father. So we want, as we interact, to listen to God and to respond to him. And I think, do you want to say something? Andrew wants to say something.
1: Just to add to what Heather has said, let me tell you how I finished up, how I preached a sermon on this, just part of it, okay? To pick up the things that she has mentioned. So, I said this, I compared, from chapter 1, the two groups of people. Well, Jonah, and then I compared the sailors. And I said, look at Jonah. In verse 9 he says, this is picking up what Heather said, that he worships or fears the Lord. And I explain how fearing the Lord in the Old Testament means respecting God, revering God, submitting to God, trembling before God, giving God prominence living as though he really was God. And so if you feared God in the Old Testament, you expressed your fear and obedience. Um, is Jonah a good model of that? No. When God speaks, he runs. When God acts, he sleeps. <laughs> um, when God judges him in Jonah 4, he goes and sulks. Um is a person in the sense that he belongs to God but he's not God's person in the se- because of anything that he is. He's rescued but not because he's a good God-fearing man. Does that make sense? God's been gracious to him. So he knows the fear of God in his head. He can recite it with his tongue but he's not living it very well I think. Okay? So what I then said is he's a man then who's happy to have the privileges of, of being amongst God's people, but he's reluctant to exercise the responsibilities. Um, so he doesn't live in the fear of God himself, I think. that fair? All right. What about the sailors? This is, I think, the incredible thing about this book. Have a look at them. They're Gentiles, strangers to God and his ways. Look at what happens. They face the elements as God controls them. And what's their response? Heather picked it up. We saw it in the chiasm. They do what? They fear. Don't they? So they search for a God behind the stormy elements. They hear of him from Jonah. And then we're told, remember Heather highlighted this, they are then, not just fearful, exceedingly fearful afraid (laughs) exceedingly fearful Um, so they're horrified then at Jonah how could a worshiper of a great God like this be so trite about him and then if you look at verse um, 16 there's another reference to fear and we're told that they fear the Lord exceedingly so I think there's a deliberate contrast within the book Jonah is not presented well the mariners are and that is a huge contrast so um, and uh, so I then say what's the tragedy of Jonah of the book as a whole Uh, here's Jonah who has the benefits of being amongst God's people but ignores God the sailors are outsiders who respond how Jonah should does that make sense? So, so this is a, when you look at it, this is a striking book. It's a self-critical book. It's a book inserted in a Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible that's critical of Jews, um, and that's that's overwhelming. I think, um, and so I hope that this examination of Job has helped you to see how you analyze a text, and the important thing with analysing a text of scripture is to let yourself go where scripture goes. But we are so often so tied to packaged solutions that we don't let the text of scripture take us where it should take us. And so what we've tried to do with Jonah is to say, look, this is a very straightforward view of the book. And if you have a look at the context, you'll see that actually the person who's most under the spotlight is God's man. And he's criticised. What does that do? Uh, what does that say? And it's quite profound, isn't it? Because then you find that, oh, I wonder if I've been like that. <laughs> I wonder if I espouse God but don't live what I espouse um so oh yes I fear I fear the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ but we don't live it so you can see how I'm now the reason I've done this is because this will lead very well into our next session which is how do you do biblical theology